Welcome to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Zerl. With me, as always, is professional film critic, Sean Patrick. Visit us at IHateCritics.net, Everyone'sACriticPodcast.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our handle is CriticsPod. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Alexa, all your podcatchers. If you go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review and let us know that you did that, especially if you're from another country, we will ship you a copy, or the next person to do it will get a copy of the 4K Blu-ray of I Spit on Your Grave, inspired by our Patreon episode that we did. Or, Bob, I've thrown in something extra to that. If if you uh, give us a five-star review, I promise to go and spit on your grave, do that wherever too. you are. <laughs> if you would like us to, or spit on any grave you'd like us to spit yeah. on. Yeah, you choose the grave. <laughs> but it's got to be within a 100-mile radius of where we live. Yeah. Yeah, be fair on the travel. Uh, and then there's our Patreon page as well, patreon.com slash criticspod. If you want to help support the podcast, there you can listen to that episode of where we did a deep dive into Ice Spit on Your Grave, which I thought was a f- one of our my more favorite episodes that we've done, and I think you would agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to have Amy back on again. She was an excellent, Absolutely. excellent co-host that episode. Uh, and every time she has been on, for that matter. And then uh, we just recorded a Beatles episode that should be out anytime. So uh, where we do a deep dive into Abbey Road. Or not a deep dive, but a deep dive for us. Yeah. <laughs> into Abbey, Abbey Road. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so, yeah. So you can get it at patreon.com slash criticspod. And then if you want any of our podcast merch, head over to ihatecritics.net. Click on our Public link uh, if you want to get some of that. Before we jump into the episode, the Critics' Choice Awards, or the nominations, were announced. You want to go into that a little bit? Yes, indeed. Yeah, we made that announcement today that the uh, Critics' Choice Awards have been announced. And uh, I was was very proud of what the movies that I chose to nominate this year, which included uh, movies that I knew weren't going to get nominated. I I did nominate Lamb for Best Picture. I did nominate... uh, Killing of Two Lovers for Best Picture because I do feel that they're uh, two of the two of the best movies of 2021. Uh, I I fully and completely believe that and I stand by it. Um, they did, obviously <laughs> among those that didn't get nominated, uh, among the many uh, good movies that didn't get nominated. But there are plenty of good movies that did get nominated, and uh, we'll start with I guess the one that got the most nominations, which was Belfast. Uh, I don't love Belfast. I don't hate Belfast. I think Belfast is this year's green book minus the controversy. <laughs> it's just a right. kind of uh, gentle, pleasant movie that that a lot. It's like the country music of movies that everybody can you know rally around very easily without anybody complaining. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Belfast gets a, no- a nomination for Best Picture. Coda, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley. The Power of the Dog, Tick, Tick, Boom, and West Side Story. I love Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, that's probably the one I'll pick for Best Picture since obviously my picks didn't make it, which includes The Green Knight, which is uh, the one I'm the most ashamed of as a group. I think we all missed that one. I think uh, I love the Critics' Choice Awards. I've never badmouthed any of them on membership of the Critics' Choice, uh, Critics Choice Association. I just feel like how we've managed to not nominate The Green Knight for anything is is bad. It's a poor reflection uh, on us because that movie is incredible and everybody knows how incredible it is. It feels like we just forgot about it (laughs) or most of the membership forgot about it. We got overrun by things like 
West Side Story and King Richard, which I, tremendously overrated movie, really doesn't belong in a best picture race for my money. Uh, it's a rather, you know, pedestrian sports movie. It's fine. Will Smith is great. It's a relatively pedestrian sports movie, if we're all going to be honest about it. Um, but Nicolas Cage did get nominated for Pig. That was one of my picks, so that's good. Better than Cumberbatch got nominated for Power of the Dog. Andrew Garfield got nominated for Tick, Tick, Boom. And I don't disagree with Will Smith getting nominated for King Richard. Great. Uh, Denzel Washington's great in The Tragedy of Macbeth, which we'll talk about uh, just before Christmas. I do have a lot of arguments with the best actress nominees because I didn't love the eyes of Tammy Faye. Uh, I really, as we'll discuss later, I really hated being the Ricardos. And I thought House of Gucci and Lady Gaga were desperately overrated. And especially in a year when we had uh, Rachel Senate in, in Shiva Baby and we had Ju- Judy, uh, Jody Comer in The Last Duel. It's it's man, I hate it. I just hate that category a lot. Uh, I think what happened and I'm not spec. I don't have anything to back this up. I think a lot of people didn't know where to nominate Jody Comer, whether it was for Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress. Uh, I think that was a little unclear. And I think the last duel people should have cleared that up a little bit better as to which category she was supposed to go in. I think they left that vague and leaving that vague. I think a lot of people put her into Best best Actress and a lot of people put her into Best Supporting Actress. And I think that's how she ends up getting left out. Uh, Best Supporting Actor, uh, a lot of of things I don't agree with here, like – especially Jared Leto in House of Gucci. I think that performance is basically a parody. Uh, I think it's a joke, and it's and I hate that it was nominated. Uh, Jamie Dornan and Siren Hines for Belfast, I can't argue with that. They're both very good in that movie, so that's fine. It's, I understand why they're there. Uh, Troy Kotzer for Coda is a great choice. Uh, and But then we nominated J.K. Simmons for Being the Ricardos, which, again, I think is a terrible film. Um, then The West Side Story stuff, we'll get to West Side Story, but I don't see it as a war- an awards movie. It's again, it's another one of those feel good choices that a lot of people like. And I, I think this should go to a movie that people are, you know, that is actually really very good as opposed to one that we can all kind of agree on. Uh, that's really, you know, like uh, what I was very impressed with was mass. Uh, the movie mass gets a nomination for Ann Dowd for best supporting actress, a very deserved nomination. And, and it's great to see that everybody, you know, found that because it's not an easy movie to find. It's not an easy. Not a lot of people have seen it. Um, and Kirsten Dunst with the for the power of the dog is great. I, I completely I can't argue with that. She was fantastic in that movie. It's not one of my choices, but again, uh, it was great. Anjanu Ellis is barely in King Richard, and that one bugs me to hell. <laughs> She's barely in that movie, and we nominated her for best supporting actress. Doesn't sit well with me. Um, <laughs> I'm being as honest. I probably shouldn't even be this honest as I am, but I'm being as honest as I po- possibly can be on this. Um, I agree with everything in the best director race, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, even Kenneth Branagh, uh, does a well-directed movie and he's a terrific director, but, uh, Jane Campion, Guillermo del Toro and Denis Villeneuve, all perfect choices. Spielberg, I can kind of argue against, but it's not, again, people are going to start to think that I hate West Side Story. We'll get to that. I don't hate it. Uh, but we had 11 nominations for Belfast and 11 nominations for, for uh, West Side Story. I didn't like that we had so many nominations for Dune because I do think that when you look at the achievement of Dune overall, it deserves a lot of nominations. It's such a huge movie. and He did such an amazing job taking this huge thing and making it so relatable 
and commercial, but also artistic. He doesn't hold back on his, you know, his theming and the way Denis Villeneuve creates a movie. He didn't compromise to make a blockbuster. He made a Denis Villeneuve uh, blockbuster. And so Dune, I'm very proud to see he got 10 nominations. Yeah. But the thing with Dune is there's nothing lacking in it. When you can look at other movies like that are that big avatar, for example, where I just think the story sucks, you know, yeah. but, but it's everything else is amazing about it. Uh, and, you know, so that's impressive there. But, yeah, it's, you know, the art house stuff usually gets left behind a little bit. And yeah, and that's just what it is. I mean, West Side Story, Spielberg, you know, it's safe. Uh, so yeah. And everybody hates Clay Crawford, so I get it. I get it. Right. <laughs> and nobody knows who Robert McCoyan is, and that's fine. I understand. They but, also didn't put on the campaign for it. That didn't help. But the Green Knight was fucking awesome. I, that, that oh my god, that bugs me so much. <laughs> like I'm looking through the list, like where is the Green Knight? How is it nowhere on this list? How is it? How is it? We possibly didn't nominate the Green Knight for anything, and we didn't. Like I keep looking, and I just it's not there. There's no Green Knight. Not even best cinematography. Didn't even get in there. Um, it, it is. It's maddening. It, production design is a no. Uh, editing is a no. Costumes are a no. I mean, <laughs> I'm blo- visual effects is a no. I I am blown away looking at this and not seeing anything for the Green Knight. That blows my mind. Yeah, that's the A twenty four movie that makes the most sense. Like Lamb, I get. You know, I love it, but it, it's. It's its own. I, I get why people would go against it, but I don't get the Green yeah, Knight. Yeah, way too divisive. I understand. But the Green Knight, I thought everybody had kind of coalesced around that one a little bit. I thought there was some momentum there. I thought that uh, I still think that the the Academy might rescue that movie because it is so so incredible. Maybe, hopefully, if they're smart. Uh, but I hate that it wasn't. I hate that it wasn't nominated. It, it belongs on a list of the best pictures of the year. And while I haven't seen House of Gucci, it seems like universally everybody understands the Last Duel's better. At least, oh the, the, yeah. And everything about that, like all those nominations, throw them out and put the Last Duel people in. <laughs> yeah, as there you far go. As I'm <laughs> I can agree with that. I mean, uh, as, I also in terms don't of think a safe that, choice, at least. Yeah. I also don't think the Nightmare Alley got a, not got nearly enough love. That movie, we'll talk about that. I think next week is a, a must that. see. It is a must see film, and wow. Don't Look Up did very well. I can be proud of that. Uh, that Don't Look Up did so well. We'll talk about that in a little bit. All right. Well, let's share the screen for our YouTube viewers and get the regular part of the show started. We will start with Don't Look Up. Yes, Don't Look Up with an all-star cast headed up by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, who play uh, scientists who are, or, I guess, astronomers who work at a university, Michigan State, I think it is. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence is working the late nights on this uh, on this big telescope that they have. This is looking deep into the solar system, and she sees something coming. She sees this, this thing that is about three months away and it's this huge discovery. And so she calls all of her colleagues and they all come in and they're all looking at it. They're all patting each other on the back. It's amazing. They're going to name it to her, for her because she's the one who found it. And as you can see, it's so well crafted. This scene is Leonardo DiCaprio slowly doing the math and working it out. You see his face begin to turn 
And obviously, you know what the premise of the movie is. You understand what the realization that he's about to have is, is that this comet is coming directly to Earth. It is, go- it is a planet killer, and it is going to crush the entire planet. Uh, and his slow realization of that is a really remarkable scene, exceptionally well-crafted by Adam McKay as he's putting that together. I really, really love that scene. Uh, he has to break into Jennifer Lawrence that this is what's happening, and they have to uh, immediately start contacting the government to try and get people involved. Uh, actor Rob Morgan plays a guy who's actually the head of the planet defense system, which is a real thing. We have an actual planet defense system. I don't know if anybody has realized that. That's a real thing. Uh, and they get in touch with him, and they show him the numbers, and he buys, he believes him immediately. He's on board. He gets them to Washington the next day to meet with the president, who doesn't meet with them. She's too busy dealing with uh, a Supreme Court nominee that she may or may not have been sleeping with, who is a complete disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and she's very concerned that he she he might not she might not be able to get this guy in the Supreme Court. Um, uh, it's a very funny, very funny plot. When she enters the scene, it's her and Jonah Hill plays her chief of staff, and also her son, uh, who's just he's just the worst human being on the planet. And they couldn't be dealing with two worse people in a crisis at this moment because <laughs> as soon as they start to explain what's going on, these two immediately just start thinking about poll numbers and how this how will people take this how's it going to affect the economy like uh, not about the fact that the world's going to end in three months they're more concerned about how they're going to spin it properly and that is the kind of thing they couldn't spin into too much uh satire like over the top stupidity but it doesn't uh because it's meryl streep and it's jonah hill and they're so professional and they're so good at making it both funny and terrifyingly real (laughs) Because you see the people that they're playing, you've seen them in real life. You've met these people in real life. You've seen them on the news and been blown away by how people could fail upwards to the highest, you know, office in the land. And <laughs> just the wrong people at the wrong moment in time. Uh, so they decided to uh, take this to the medium because the, the president wanted to keep it under wraps for now while they think of what they might want to do. Uh, they're concerned they may do nothing because they they're concerned that the president might not even believe them, even though it's pretty much indisputable. Everybody else agrees. But of course, the head of NASA is a very large donor rather than being a scientist. So <laughs> instead of having an expert at NASA to help out, they just got somebody who paid a lot of money for their job. Uh, so they take it to the media. This is where uh, Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett come in as a pair of, uh, I guess, a, a burlesque of... Uh, uh, Joe, uh, Morning Joe guy, and his and Mika Brzezinska, I think her name is the the his co-host, and that is again just another dead end. They start telling them what's happening. This thing is coming to Earth in three months, and these two just want to you know make jokes about how handsome Leonardo DiCaprio is and react. The reactions on social media are immediate. I don't believe this. This isn't real. They're making this up. Why is this guy lying? Why are they so boring? Why is she crying? Uh, they're making fun of them instead of actually listening to the fact that they've discovered this massive thing that's going to hit Earth in three months. Um, and so it goes from there. This movie has beautiful echoes of Doctor Strangelove and especially like the war room scene and <laughs> just the the worst of the dark comedy that, that Kubrick brought to to Doctor Strangelove is available here. Adam McKay really goes there. He holds nothing back to the point where... 
<laughs> and this movie is going to piss off a lot of people. Um, the, 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 the phrase don't look up comes to be something that the president says to try and keep people from realizing that they can actually see a comet coming to Earth. It's so beautiful. She's literally encouraging everyone to look down. And they've got hats that happen to be red <laughs> that say, don't look up. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love this movie. <laughs> Do they acknowledge political parties or you just figure it out on your own? You kind of figure it out on your own. Yeah. Now it's critically, I mean, it's only, it's rotten. It's 55%. I don't get uh, it. But then again, I, this is the kind of movie that you can't coalesce around. It's a movie that's going to divide people. It's not a movie that's going to satisfy all audiences. Adam McKay has has gone there yeah. and he's he seems unwilling to to care about you know trying to make this a both sides thing yeah and uh, the audience score is 74 so it's not that's not bad i can't wait to see it if nothing else i, I know it'll satisfy you know my hatred and whatever you know whatever anger i try to not right uh, you know uh, you know act on you know it yeah. satisfies that need uh and i en- i enjoy that plus i mean he hasn't always knocked out of the park, Adam McKay, when he does these. But when he does, I you know I really like the big whatever was it called, uh, Big Short, the Big Short. Yeah. I, I like Vice that was quite a big a miss. Vice on the, on the was same. a miss for me too. And I was kind of worried that there were echoes of Vice in this, but then he chooses his gags so incredibly well. He chooses his characters incredibly well. I've purposefully left out a character played by Mark Rylance, and I won't go any deeper than that. You have to see the movie to see his character and to see how his his role plays out. It's very, very funny. Well, and I do like they're not real people. You know, it's Meryl Streep's not playing Trump, even if she right. is. You know, it, it's I, I do like that it's a lot of made up stuff because I think that works better. Yeah, uh, but I can't wait. Jennifer uh, Jennifer Lawrence is great in this, and as as she's she just so sad, <laughs> it's so beautiful, and uh, and her relationship with Timothy Chalamet is just so it's so dark and funny. I I dig that. And then on the opposite side, you know, DiCaprio and Blanchett have this very funny, uh, very dark <laughs> relationship as well. That that uh, is is a whole other. It's just so many elements in this movie. Ron Perlman has. Two of the best jokes in the entire movie. These wonderfully visual jokes that are just so fantastic. And, and like I said, all savage. He's definitely he's he's very he's very much a character out of uh, out of uh, Doctor Strangelove. Like I said, this movie for me compares on on uh, to Doctor Strangelove in the best possible way. That's awesome. I really can't wait. It comes to Netflix December twenty fourth. It's in theaters now. Uh, it looks amazing. I can't wait to see it. Uh, oddly enough, it's the second worst reviewed movie of the week, according to critics. <laughs> so, <laughs> so weird. Yeah. So <laughs> we'll get to all those here in a little bit. Uh, let's go to one of the better reviewed movies of the week. Uh, being the Ricardos. <laughs> Ricardos. <laughs> being the Ricardos. Starring Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball and Javier Bardem as... Desi Arnaz in the a story written by and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, this tells the story of a week in the life of the I Love Lucy TV show. Uh, and this week is uh, incredibly eventful because Lucy has testified before the 
uh, House Un-American Activities Commission. She's had a bit of a misunderstanding where she may have had a communist tie some 20 years ago, and it could end her career, her television show, and her husband's career on top of it. So that's hanging over them. She's also just announcing to everybody that she's pregnant, which, of course, is going to play out on I Love Lucy, becoming the first you know pr- television character to portray pregnancy on screen, which is a pretty big thing. Um, Desi is told Desi's telling the network this week that we're doing this whether you like it or not. You can cancel the show or whatever, but we're putting this on television that she's going to have the baby on TV and not hold a box in front of her for an entire season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate this movie. Um, <laughs> and I, I it's I'll tell you it's it's entirely about Aaron Sorkin. I I'm a fan of what Aaron Sorkin does. Like I love the Social Network, and I've seen every episode of The West Wing. I've come around on The West Wing as not being that great <laughs> because I've been listening to to a lot of different things and rewatching and reevaluating. So you can kind of see the strings getting pulled a little bit too much on that show sometimes. And here we get some of the worst of Aaron Sorkin. Um, Lucille Ball and I Love Lucy. Whether you've seen it or not, whether it, it's it it's aged, but it is so funny. At times, there are some there are reasons why people still talk about the grape stopping scene or the uh, the the tele- the skits that she did, uh, the the chocolates, all the physical comedy stuff that she did is still funny, regardless of the time. It's still funny, and she puts so much energy and life into doing it. For and I don't care about what was real or not. Sorkin portrays Lucille Ball as Mark Zuckerberg you know, or as President Bartlett. This humorless character for whom everything is genius, everything is about their great genius, to the point where he portrays Lucille Ball as hating her own comedy, but also being great at it. So she hates what she does, but she's like this brilliant mathematician who can pull comedy from from where no one else can see it. Uh, it is so annoying. They they talk about the the famous grape stopping scene. In this movie, and the writers are breaking it down, trying to figure out what the punchline is going to be and how it's going to play out. And we cut to this close up of Lucy just thinking about it. We cut to the scene. We see her stomping. We see her getting in. We see her identifying the woman in the peasant dress who's inviting her to come in and stop the grapes. You see her figuring out what she's going to do once she's in there. She's going to do this little dance and smile, and it's going to be very funny, the physical comedy. Then the punchline is she's dropped her earring and she has to crawl through all the grapes to try and find it. And she does, they managed to take a scene that is one of the most iconic in television history, one that is beloved and remembered by millions of people, and make it completely unfunny. (laughs) Because we know Lucy hated doing it, apparently, and she doesn't like it, And she's but she's a genius and everybody loves it. And she already knows, before she's ever done it, that everyone's going to love it. But even worse, (laughs) have you watched The West Wing? I've seen it. I I wasn't a regular viewer, though. There's a character on there named Joshua Lyman, who is played by Bradley Whitford, who's one of people's favorite characters. He's a very good character in many ways. But he's Sorkin's insert character. He's the guy with all the answers. He's the guy guy who always has the funny joke to say. He's always right on top of everything. There is a scene in this movie that I guarantee you is a is a scene that they have in the West Wing. And if I scrub through through a season of the West Wing, I could find this plot. It has to do with Lucy, or it has to do with Desi telling 
the network that he's going, they're going to do the pregnancy thing and that the sponsors are going to be on his side. And the network's like, no, they're not. They're going to pull. They're going to tell you, you can't do it. And he's very confident that they're going to do it. And it comes down to this annoying scene where of course he gets his way and he's the brilliant genius. And then he walks away and he does a little dance. He does a little dance. And it's like, oh, my God, I know I could find Josh Lyman doing that exact same thing. And it just ruined the entire plausibility and believability of the character of Desi Arnaz, because regardless of whether he was the same kind of genius or the same kind of, you know, the the the, the giant mind, the way that, you know, Joshua Lyman was, he's not Joshua Lyman. He was never Joshua Lyman. It's, he's not the Sorkin insert character, but you've given him a scene that is so much Aaron Sorkin that it takes you out of any possibility of believing that this character or this movie was anything like he's portraying it it is irritating i hate this movie this movie is on my top 10 worst of the year list and these are the type of movies that i feel belong on their worst of the year list (laughs) because only because you know this is one where critics are they are praising it uh even the audience likes it that saw it according to rotten tomatoes and i haven't seen it so but you know, I'd rather if something like this misses, it's more of a miss for me than a, you know, a Rob Schneider movie. <laughs> uh, I guess my question is, is this supposed to be historically accurate or is this like the social network where it's Aaron Sorkin just telling a story? I, I'm assuming it's like the social network. I don't know if there's any truth to it or not. I don't care. Honestly, how you make I Love Lucy pretentious that should be a strike against this movie, not a check in its favor. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could see if you're gonna put. It's one thing to not like it, but then to have her be uber confident over it. If you're gonna put a little self doubt or something like that, or if I don't know, I mean, oh. uh, I'm just trying to think of what you could do to make it work. Uh, other, but the fact that Aaron Sorkin he kind of has a, a rhythm, he has a style, uh, almost a cadence to his movies. Uh, I know we haven't really loved his directorial work. Uh, much bigger fan of his writing, uh, especially if a David Fincher there to, yeah. you know, make one of the greatest. He, need, of all he time. needs he needs an interpreter. He needs someone to pull him pull the reins, and nobody's pulling the reins on this. This is full Aaron Sorkin. That's why it's hard to believe that any of this is true, is because the rhythm of it is so much Aaron Sorkin. And it doesn't feel authentic to Lucille Ball, or at least the Lucille Ball that we know from television, who, I don't know, maybe she did hate everything she did. Maybe she did feel like she wasn't enough of a a feminist or or enough of a, uh, maybe Lucy wasn't woke enough for her own time, (laughs) maybe. But to have her, you know, openly state that she knows that what she does is low comedy or she she has no pride in, in her work she just she's just happens to be this absolute genius who understands the audience better than anybody else and knows how to make them laugh with these stupid gags uh it, it's it's downright hurtful to portray her in that way honestly it, it really you she she's she may have been horrible. I don't know. Maybe Lucy was a horrible pure person. I don't know. But the Lucy from television is something that I do have kind of a, a nostalgic remembrance of. And I'm not asking it to live up to exactly what I want of it because Lucy herself didn't live up to exactly how I wanted her to be. But I've seen her in talk shows. She didn't seem like she hated everything that she did. She didn't seem like she was this overbearing, smug genius all the time. And that really sucks to portray her that way. Now, I guess my next question is, 
if say you make this a fictional TV show and fictional characters, does it get better? Yeah, yeah, I bet it would. I bet it would. I bet it. I bet the timing of it would be would be more. I think it. I think it would be better. Honestly, yeah, I'm bringing a lot to the Lucy stuff on this. I well, think this is. And I'm not blaming you for that. I think if you look at the social network, part of why that works is we knew the names of those guys. We didn't really know them at the time. We know more about them yeah. now than we did then. Uh, but that's why he could make up a story related to them. Plus, you had Fincher uh, really pulling the strings properly. Uh, so and I, even if you're bringing stuff to it, that's a, that's a mistake in, on his part. And if, as far as I'm concerned, I'll, I mean, I'll try to give it a shot. It comes out on Amazon December 21st. Uh, in theaters now, but yeah, I mean, 70% of Rotten Tomatoes isn't great. It's yep. just okay. Uh, what do we got next? The third lowest rated movie of the week, National Champions, according to critics. This is a really good movie. Uh, <laughs> this is a star. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, movie. this is going to be like, everything is like opposite of what I think you're going to say. <laughs> it's just kind of fun. <laughs> This is this isn't a great movie. It's it's definitely got a lot of faults to it. It's got a lot of flaws to it. It's especially when it comes to sports movies. Uh, this is a movie that's laying out the case for paying college football players. And granted, I'm on that side. I've always been on that side. Uh, so I'm. It was preaching to the choir when it came to me, but. Uh, I, nevertheless, I, I bought in. I thought the, I was really impressed by the by the main character here, played by Stephen James, who plays a a world class quarterback who is playing in the national championship game. It's his coach uh, J.K. Simmons's first opportunity to win a national championship. There's a lot of hype around the game, and he, he and his uh, uh, tight end, played by Alexander Ludwig, decide that this is the moment where they need to protest. They need to say, "We're not going to play." And you can't make us play unless you're going to negotiate and give us what we want, which is pay for college players. A lot of that has to do with the fact that Alexander Ludwig's character is not somebody who's going to end up in the NFL. He's not going to go beyond college. He's coming out of college injured uh, from from four years of playing football, and he's returning home to parents who live in a you know a, a trailer. Uh, he got a college education, which will help him, but he, but he's going to be in pain for a lot of the rest of his life, and he gets. You know, no real compensation for that. And their their stories like his, they are even worse than his of guys who are going back to nothing after spending four years in college and not making it to the NFL. Uh, so this guy is essentially this this character played by Stephen James is essentially using his power as the likely number one pick in the NFL to say, hey, the, you need if you're going to make billions and billions of dollars off of this. You should give some of that back to the people who are actually sacrificing something for this. And that is something I can completely agree with. Uh, on top of which, I think this movie is relatively fair about that argument. It's not overly, it's not over the top laying that on on as the only truth. Uh, there's a character played by Uzo Adoba, who is the lawyer for the NCAA, and she's very compelling in her argument against it. She's not portrayed as this over-the-top, you know, harridan who's trying to deny these people. She's kind of cruel in her tactics is what she's trying to get, but she's got a, a backstory behind her that makes sense. If the football players get what they want and they get paid, the likelihood is that that's, the NCAA is not giving up their profits. What they're going to do is take that money from the girls' basketball, from 
the gymnastics team. They're going to take that from the swimming team. From every smaller sport, we'll get smaller because the NCAA is not going to give up their profits from football. They're just going to take the a portion of what's already there and shift it to the college football players. Now, there's an argument to say that these guys do grave harm to their bodies doing this and that they deserve to be paid. And I, I'm on that side. But this movie, I thought, was very fair in that portrayal. As far as problems go, like there's a character played by Kristen Chenoweth, who is the wife of the head coach, and she's having an affair uh, that plays into the plot, but it can be entirely lifted out of the movie and you wouldn't miss it. You wouldn't miss her characters. Not that she's bad. It's just the character doesn't have enough behind her to justify her existence. Um, and same kind of goes for a character played by Timothy Oliphant, but and he does a little bit more. The, the plot does a little bit more to justify his existence than it does hers. And um, <laughs> Jeffrey Donovan as in this movie and he's he's such a great villain he's such a snake and you hate him <laughs> he's so hateable and i love how hateable he is and you got tim like nelson in there as well who's kind of playing another version of that that's both hateable but also kind of weirdly charming even though he's such an asshole <laughs> <laughs> and that's just the talent of of tim blake nelson he's got one moment in nightmare alley uh, next week that is even better it's one of the best scenes of the, of the entire year and it's the only scene that he's in, in the movie that's awesome. I mean, this to me, without and I haven't seen it, but it seems like a movie that should have gone to streaming, uh, and it could have done very well because I would have watched it, whether it's HBO or Netflix, or whatever. This is like the perfect movie to sit and watch at home. I don't know why yeah. you would need to see this in the theater, uh, especially with the way the the theater, the way movies are released are it's changing. Uh, but I'm very interested in the subject matter. I don't know. I mean, I definitely. It's complicated. I, I, yeah, it is. It's you, part of it. You do get a college education, but at the same time, your money's being made. So everybody who's involved in making the money should be get, get a part of it. You know. Yeah. So it, there, there's a lot that goes into it, and I, uh, I'm definitely interested in it. And I'm sure when it is on Netflix or whatever other streaming state platform it ends up on, I'll definitely watch it. But I just I don't get why you would go theatrical with this. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. When it's not, it's no longer like taboo to go to streaming anymore. It's just not yeah. like it was. So this would have been perfect for that if it were up to me. But whatever. How did it do? Do you know? Probably not very well. Yeah. Uh, I'm just guessing it because it didn't get a very good promotion. And I, I do. You know, when you talk about it going straight to streaming, I do wonder if there if there is ever going to be. Like a movie that speaks out this much against the NCAA, like Amazon's already kind of got to deal with college football. They weren't probably going to touch a movie like this. Yeah. I don't know if Netflix has any has any designs on any sports in the future. They might, and if they did, obviously, yeah, the NCAA is not going to deal with STX Entertainment anytime soon. If they had anything to do with them before, well, they did. Um, what did that? There was a, was it a Will Smith concussion movie a few years back, and they actually yeah. Didn't they actually even get involvement with the NFL a little bit? I don't. Think I feel like so, the real maybe? teams were on there, so they would have had to. Maybe I'm not sure. I don't remember. No, because of my own concussions. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that is a good point. Uh, didn't really think that angle. Maybe ESPN could get it. Uh, I think ESPN legitimately turned out a movie exactly like this. <laughs> 
I'm surprised they wouldn't have done a 30 for 30 or something like that on this very topic. I mean, you couldn't really do They're 30 done. for 30, but you could do some sort of documentary on it. They've done some news stories on it, but you know, you know which side of the fence ESPN is on on that one. They're not going to piss off the NCAA. Well, they're definitely that not going to. That eighteen million dollars is some of their money. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the NFL has that, if not more, and they're paying their. I don't know. It's stupid. That's a professional job. Yeah, well, we yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to have the argument. Uh, one movie to go straight to streaming: The Unforgivable, starring Sandra Bullock. Yes, The, the Unforgivable stars Sandra Bullock as uh, a woman who is uh, just getting out of prison. She's uh, several years earlier involved in an incident where a police officer was shot and killed, or a sheriff was shot and killed, uh, trying to evict her and her sister from their home. Uh, and she spent the last twenty or so years in jail. Uh, she gets out of jail and she wants to reunite with her sister, who was only five years old uh, when this incident occurred, which does lead you to wonder exactly how old was Sandra Bullock's character supposed to be in this movie? Yeah, I, I definitely, how old is she now? I mean, I know she's 57 in real life. Uh, I mean, she definitely could have been anywhere from, I mean, I did have that question uh, as well, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, I don't think she was playing 37. Uh, it seemed like it just this situation would mean that she had to have been, I don't know, much younger. I guess maybe she could have been in her late twenties. I guess I could buy. I I, I, I could buy that. I, I, yeah, I could buy that. It's they, it's not like a Ben Platt in Dear Evidence no. situation. It's not. She's she's much better at at the at, and they're the movie's slightly better at playing it off is so you don't necessarily linger on the question. It just kind of occurred to well, me as it, I was describing it. And it, it happens because she's such a big star, you know, I mean, yeah. for the most part, you probably have access to her age and all that stuff. So that's why we're asking the question more. So if it was a throwaway actress that we didn't know, it would play a little differently, I think. But anyway, yeah. go ahead. Uh, she, she gets out of jail. She wants to reunite with her sister. She's got to go through several different layers in order to get there. Uh, this is this is a mess. This movie is a mess. It's awesome. a complete mess. Uh, there's several different movies happening within this movie. Uh, the the whole there it's it's misery porn for a while. You know, we're just because everybody's just taking a giant dump on her to the point where you're just wondering if if the plot is just building towards her killing herself. I mean, it's so it's so miserable from beginning to end. It's just so miserable. She gets no joy out of anything and you i mean granted yes i know there's a lot of people out there who say well she murdered a police officer she doesn't deserve anything and i guess the movie's trying to make it make sort of an argument that she's still a human being and she's still alive and she just still deserves you know some sort of human compassion but it doesn't do a very good job of it <laughs> it doesn't like give her a quiet moment somewhere where she gets to find something that she likes uh because the movie goes about giving her that a little bit and then taking it away in the worst possible way uh, through a character played by uh, John Bernthal, I think it is, uh, who becomes sort of a love interest and then uh, becomes something other than that very quickly. <laughs> um, yeah, this movie is a mess. Uh, Viola Davis is in this and her character. Why do you hire Viola Davis to play an entirely extraneous character and give her nothing to do? She's Viola freaking Davis. 
don't hire her to do nothing. <laughs> don't hire her to hang around in the background or drive Sandra Bullock somewhere. She's Viola Davis, damn it. <laughs> We've got Vincent D'Onofrio in this movie, who's fine. But the, having him and, and, and her be so tangential to the plot, <clears throat> while you have these, these two parents who brought who brought up her sister, who raised her sister, those two characters are played by vaguely recognizable actors from television. When you have Viola Davis and Vincent D'Onofrio right there, switch those roles, man. Switch them around. Yeah, I can see that working better. Then you've got this subplot about the the sons of the guy she killed, and those two guys are two of the most unmemorable actors you could find in, again, another one of the more important roles of the movie. Uh, just a complete mess. Yeah, this was one was weird because I, I watched it in a state of utter exhaustion, so I couldn't. There was no critical eye watching it, and when it was over, I liked it quite a bit. And I'm like, but I felt like this is kind of how I felt like at the end of American History X, or you know, something like that. That's definitely very Hollywood doing enough to you know the misery porn that gets you to feel bad for it and there's stuff i st- like the john berthold stuff i think is very real so I, I don't mind that part of it uh i actually prefer that to something that's more hollywood and fake but there's enough of that where they're definitely setting up to feel worse so they're because they keep beating it down so much that yeah. i get why you say what you said there because they give her a little bit and take it away in the worst way possible which Again, I think if that was the only thing, if you focus more on that and kind of let some other stuff go, maybe it would work. Again, I still watched it a state of utter exhaustion, so I, I liked it quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. but, but it definitely reminded me of uh, you know movies like you know A Time to Kill is another one that probably isn't the best critically great movie, but it's very safe and straight ahead, and you have the Hollywood. Uh, just the the cheats to get you to feel a certain way, you know, when, in those pretty cancer movies, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that that's present in this movie, and uh, I couldn't tell you what it was because again, I like this movie, but I, I just feel like I was duped a little bit, and uh, so I am kind of. And when I look at the Rotten Tomato scores, critics forty percent, audiences eighty six percent. Uh, this is one of the highest audience movies of the week, <laughs> so yeah. I totally that totally makes sense to my theory. Which w- it was fun to go back and analyze my the way I view viewed the movie from that point of view, which and it makes me feel more like okay, I get you know your state of mind can affect a movie so easily, and uh, I kind of appreciate you know that how I can be wrong, know I'm wrong, and still like something. <laughs> <laughs> in the moment and my wife didn't yeah. watch it with me or anything. this is the type of movie my wife would love uh and i i knew that and so it was just kind of i don't know it, it was just kind of a neat w- looking at it from that angle which probably means nothing to our listeners <laughs> but <laughs> i just i enjoyed so that part of breaking down my opinion <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the John Berthold character bugged me because he's such a typical character for a movie like this. Like this character is always in this movie. He's that guy that she doesn't want to talk to, doesn't want to talk to, but he's gonna wear her down. And then maybe it could get good. But then I it was interesting the way that they kind of divided them up a little bit. That that was interesting. Um, but 
yeah, the scene where he's trying to explain himself didn't work for me. And then uh, <laughs> the the idea, though, that he didn't know what he was dealing with because they're working together at this fish market. This fish market, we're told early on, has a has a habit of hiring ex-cons like they hire ex-cons a lot. So for him to just assume that she wasn't one didn't make sense to me. Like I would think that would be one of the first conversations he has, considering that neither of them are allowed to be around other ex-cons for very long, or at least have personal relationships with them. I think that would have been one of the first things he asked instead of one of the last, not realizing it. I just felt like that, sh- that didn't ring true at all. I mean, I get why he would say that, but at the same time, I, I would put a character like John Bernthal's to definitely view women as, you know, you know, not impurposely, but not he would probably never consider her the next con because she's a woman. I, I could see his character thinking that way, but again, none of it was enough to you know. And I will agree with the part where he goes to kind of explain himself in another movie. They find a way to get together, uh, yeah. And I, I, I'm I like that this movie doesn't go there, but they still you don't need that scene. Uh, it was enough, you know, leave it where he walked, they walked away and it was. Yeah. Cause it added nothing that even that explanation, it added nothing to the movie. You know? it, it just wanted to make him a little less bad, uh, which is yeah. unnecessary uh, because it has nothing to do with the rest of the plot. He doesn't play a role. He, he, again, you're not using your John Bernthal, right? You're not using your Viola Davis, right? You're not using your Vincent D'Onofrio, right? Vincent D'Onofrio is a character who just facilitates things. That's it. That's all he does. He's and he's trying. You know, Vincent D'Onofrio is a charming actor. He's a very good actor, but you give him a role where he's just facilitating for other actors. I uh, that's not the best use of his talent. You're not giving him anything to do. Why did you hire him? Uh, right. Even bigger question: Why did you hire Viola Davis to be Sandra Bullock's driver for a scene? Like that's basically the biggest scene she has in the movie. Yeah, and in hindsight, looking back at it, uh, because it was Vincent D'Onofrio and Viola Davis playing that couple, I cared more about that part of the movie, but that part of the movie is so small that, you know, I guess they do elevate those roles, but they didn't need <laughs> elevating. Uh, and really, they didn't have to be, you didn't, you could have kind of redone that all together and not Get rid of that whole have, plot. Bulldoze the house. Bulldoze you it. Don't Get need rid the of the house. entire. You don't need the house. Bulldoze the house. You've got her remembering shit, which, by the way, again, just another bad screenwriter's trope of uh, the the sister character just kind of vaguely having these pieces of her memory reoccur to her uh, is such a cliche. It's such a screenwriting cliche that they fall back on too much. This movie didn't need that either, but it didn't need the house at all. It would have been more poignant to have bulldozed that house and have her find her lawyer another way. Uh, she finds her lawyer because she goes back to the house where this incident happened, where this, poli- this police sheriff got killed. Uh, and she goes back there, and it's now owned by Vincent D'Onofrio and, and Viola Davis. And then it becomes that's very how she meets her lawyer. And then it's, yeah, it's very incredibly convenient. convenient. And, and incredibly just out of just out of left field, just not necessary to the story at all. Bulldoze the house. Give her one poignant scene of looking at where it was and move on. Far more effective. What about the plot twist, if you will? Thoughts on that? Make it worse, um, better, worse, indifferent? 
Oh yeah, no, indifferent. Yeah, it didn't really. I couldn't honestly remember what the twist was there for a moment because it seemed so. It was not not well set up at all. I mean, it, it's intended to be this moment that makes you gasp, but like it it, it was far more it was far better without the twist. Honestly, uh, it, it it made her character seem that much more you know had more depth it, it seemed like a convenient thing to try and make her more likable when it's more challenging for her to have been somebody who in that situation uh what happened uh you know it would be it was more interesting the other way yeah it seemed like a pulled it feels like a pulled punch to do to do that twist i get that for me it was more of a yeah, it does. It makes it's a pull punch on the character, but it does put you in a situation where all of a sudden now you can relate to the character. Like, oh my god, you know how do you get out? But again, uh, I was. It relies on a lot of convenience and a lot of people not doing their job, though, as well. Yes, and because of you know the sheer exhaustion, watching the movie with my head as off as it could be, uh, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> but I so you recommend this movie. <laughs> There's a certain audience. They're not listening to our podcast, but there's an audience for this movie. Uh, as you know, liberal wine moms. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Hell, even there are. even I could see even like conservative people, especially with the the punch they pull at the end, getting into this movie too, because uh, they it's they pulled a punch if you're going to go that route of the movie. Uh, I don't know the whole thing. I yeah, it, it was just I was more interested in this conversation because I knew I was wrong and I knew <laughs> the feeling I had was not right. Yeah, but I I was looking forward to talking about it. The humans. The humans stars uh, Richard Jenkins, Amy Schumer, Stephen Yoon, Beanie Feldstein, June Squibb, and Jane Howdy Shell as the uh, uh, adaptation of a play by the director. Uh, 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 Karim, uh, Stephen, uh, I can't remember his first name. His last name is Karim. Uh, and he's adapted this play here about a family getting together for Thanksgiving. Uh, Stephen Yoon is this new introduction to the family. He's the going to be the husband of Beanie Feldstein's character. Uh, he's kind of getting introduced to their family dynamic really for the first time, which uh, includes uh, an elderly grandmother played by June Squibb who has dementia and has some very disturbing spells. Uh, Amy Schumer's character is a very, you know, put upon daughter who's got a lot going on. She's just lost her job and her girlfriend. Her parents are not particularly happy with her having come out as gay. So there's a lot of tension there. Uh, Richard Jenkins seems to be having a, a true existential crisis as if his life is really about to end at any moment. It would seem <laughs> uh, just from, from the way he carries himself. Like he's just so downtrodden. Um, Matt Zoller Seitz wrote something about this that I think you'll like uh, in the Roger Ebert.com review. He's, he compared this to hereditary without the, without the big horror scares. And he's not wrong. This movie, like this apartment that they're in in New York city does have its own sort of, it's own very unique architecture that does and the lighting and the camera work kind of treat this like a horror film in many ways. Um, and I, I love the aesthetic there. It kind of reminded me of another movie that not a lot of people have seen called Shiva Baby, which was a comedy, but was played with a horror score. 
<laughs> this beautiful, brilliant horror score that underlined the the terror that the character felt throughout her anxieties, you know, coming coming at her at all from around all corners. Darkly humorous, but you know, also kind of makes you hold your breath while you're watching a comedy. And this is the kind of movie that'll make you catch your breath while you're watching what appears to be just a, your average family uh, drama. The it's a small apartment, but it has two floors, uh, which is uh, I don't know how that if, I don't know how that goes in New York, whether or not that's considered large or not. It looks very small, though, in the way he he films it. Uh, it's also unfurnished, so there's this empty quality. There's plenty of space for people to be in, and even in this small space, he manages to get each of these characters alone for a moment and. Fine. And you can still hear all the noise in the background. You can hear people talking downstairs. You can hear the neighbor upstairs dropping things. But you're still alone with these people. And it's as if they're each in a box alone and very terrified and anxious about that. And uh, it's incredible, really, the, the way this movie kind of gets to you, uh, the way it uses the architecture. And for a guy who's not a, he's a first-time director, he's a, he's a uh, playwright and uh, you know he's he's directing plays, but this is his first film direction. He did an incredible job uh, using his space incredibly well. They found this perfect spot to film this this decaying apartment uh, that, that uh, is probably an economic drag on both her and her husband, but they just don't want to be in Scranton, <laughs> so they, they they live here instead. Um, I, I I really dug this movie. This is a really smart, sharp movie. I got part way through, but it's been it was a very exhausting week for me, uh, and I wanted to experience this with a fresh head because <laughs> yeah. uh, unlike the unforgivable a movie like this, probably won't work when you're tired. Uh, there's not no. enough to. Uh, yeah, I really wanted to experience for what it was. It's a very quiet movie. Uh, I I could have used more of a maybe more of a underscore to kind of keep it because uh, at times it does not drag, but there, there are moments where you're kind of having to lean in a little closer because there, there's not a lot going on, which is not a bad thing, but it's, it does. I can see where this definitely loses a lot of audiences. I can definitely see why this wasn't nominated for awards because not every audience is going to, is going to be as patient as you need to be with this movie. Yeah. It was the second highest reviewed movie of the week. <laughs> oh, critics critics. Are, are notably patient. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, another highly rated uh, A24 film by critics. <laughs> it's Red Rocket, 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. And the worst A24 movie of all time, somehow. Uh, <laughs> I uh, like being the Ricardos. I hated this movie. Uh, and I really, and I also hated the way people bull, 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 explained it afterwards to me. Um, Simon Rex plays a former adult film actor who returns to his uh, small hometown in Texas to uh, be with his ex-wife, who's also herself a former adult film actress. They went there together to be in adult films. She came back much earlier after having a much worse experience than he did. Because he wanted to, but because he just lost everything in a really stupid fashion because he's not a very smart character. Uh, he talks his way into the house of his wife, his wife and his uh, mother-in-law, and they let him stay there. And he is the he, this character is so obnoxious. It is, I mean, it's really like somebody made an art film out of an Adam Sandler movie. Uh, the way this guy is just so over the top, 
hateful and obnoxious and, un- and completely unaware of other people. Uh, there's no redeeming quality about him. Uh, the rest of the plot has him kind of weaving, worming his way back into his wife's good graces and even getting into bed with her. And then he meets a 17-year-old girl named Strawberry, who he feels could get him back into the adult film business because she's so attractive and and naive and uh, you know malleable. She could be taught how to do sex properly and and well on camera. And so he begins to groom her. That's the rest of the plot is him grooming her to go to Los Angeles with him to do adult films. The way this was explained to me afterwards, because I watched this thing, just a full on fucking hate watch throughout the entire movie. And then afterwards, it was explained to me that I should have been paying attention to what's on the television in the background. And what's on the television in the background is the 2016 election. And basically what I'm told, and I don't buy this, but I'm told that the arc of Simon Rex's character is essentially Donald Trump. He's essentially, or a Trump voter, uh, the kind of person who could have been convinced to vote for Donald Trump. That's what I'm supposed to take away from this, is that these are the people that would be taken advantage of by that uh, criminal Donald Trump. And I hate that. I hate that so much. That is such that is such the worst part of the left is is this type of insulting uh, this type of insulting uh, narrative. Uh, I'm not saying that you that you have to be kind to people you disagree with, especially those who are completely wrong and going out of their way to be wrong. I'm not saying you have to be kind or respect them. But when but this is so to the other side of that. It's so just insulting if that's the case. And it just makes me hate the movie even more and not appreciate that this is supposed to be, you know, comedy about, I don't know, the, the extreme right wing or whatever, or, or a Donald Trump or a Donald Trump. Like, oh, do- see how Donald Trump kept he's a terrible person, but he kept rising and rising and things kept going right for him and going his way and going the way he wanted to, even as he did all these horrible things. That's the comparison. I've spoiled the movie for you guys. Sorry. <laughs> that's what they're going for apparently is that he's he's essentially Donald Trump yeah that's kind of weak yeah I I mean when you said Art House Adam Sandler film at least that I could get behind the in, the attempt <laughs> I uh, do want I, I would encourage you to watch this maybe you'll see it differently than I did I, I really I, I'll give it a shot uh, just I mean I, A24 uh, I I I love them, and I like to even the one like Free Fire you hated, but I at least got. I was like, I get it a little bit. I yeah. I don't have a problem with it. I don't. It's definitely forgot forgettable, and I'm definitely bringing my A24 love to it. Uh, and I'm very proud that I haven't hated an A24 movie yet. <laughs> uh, but this is worse than Free Fire. This is this is worse than Free Fire for sure. Um. I, I just like the the whole grooming the seventeen year old girl thing. I, it's I, people are just assuming that I'm somehow a moralist or something that I'm morally opposed to the way that character is portrayed because she's portrayed very sexually. She has a I believe she has a, even a nude scene in the movie, and it's not a moral objection. It's an objection to the fact that that those scenes. I guess they're intended to be exploitational, but they're also it's like. It, it feels very, it feels even creepier though. Like I get that, that there's a fine line. It, it, 
Malcolm Gladwell did this podcast years ago for one of his podcasts where he talked about satire and he talked about how satire can be very easily misunderstood. It's a very, it's a razor thin thing. Like, like conservatives began to like Steve. was the joke. And I think that this is a movie that crosses that line from being satirical into being like, you can't tell where the line is on the joke. Is Sean Baker a total creep who's enjoying putting this young girl in these situations? Or is this satire? I'm willing to assume it's satire, but it's not very good satire because there, he, he takes her to a strip club at one point and the movie lingers on that. And then they have sex in a truck outside the strip club and the movie lingers on it and, make, and makes her a very sexual, exploitative figure. And I understand that's what the character of Simon Rex is doing, but I just didn't feel like the camera needed to do that, too. Uh, maybe they're trying to impl- implicate us in sexualizing her. Fine, but I didn't. I just wasn't feeling it. I felt like that was a step too far. I hate when movies try to implicate the audience. I think it's lazy and stupid. <laughs> Implicating it, why doing what it is that you're trying to... Like, hey, creep, look at this. Look at this beautiful naked woman, creep. Look closer, creep. Look closer, creep. Okay, okay, I get it. I'm a creep. I like her, too. She's very attractive. Yeah, that's... And I don't know. I I will watch it. I'm curious. Uh, It'd be nice to be able to bring something to it that maybe that hasn't been talked about. But there's definitely things that have gone on. I mean, we've talked about, you know, I don't know. We don't even need to go off on it, but... It's just things that make me uncomfortable anymore. And people that I agree with, I there's, there's just a level of hatred that I don't like. You know, I, I'm all for no respect, but hate is such a problem right now <laughs> that we need to somehow get away from. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> this is going to be my villain origin story for when I turn to the right. <laughs> gonna be like ah see this is where it started sean became sean became everything he hated (laughs) (laughs) can't see that the grooming the 17 year old movie is a bad it wasn't that bad (laughs) he's a moralist he's a right wing (laughs) all right up next the hating game the hating game is way better than red rocket (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a low bar for me, man. Uh, I wasn't going to watch this movie. Um, this is just your very basic, uh, like kind of an R-rated lifetime movie. Um, <laughs> it's a romantic comedy. Uh, here's the thing. I watched like I watched Nightmare Alley and The Tragedy of Macbeth, and I watched uh, The Lost Daughter. And that was like a 24-hour period for me. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I need to relax. Here's this really stupid looking movie. Let's watch that. <laughs> and so that's the mindset that I took into the hating game. Uh, Lucy Hale plays a, a person who works at a publishing house. Uh, she works in the same office as Austin Stoll's character, and they hate each other. He's uh, been brought into the company by Corbin Birdson, who's uh, kind of taken over part of the country. Like he's got half the company, and her, her boss has the other half of the company. And so they've forced to work together. It's one of those jobs in publishing that it feels good in a lifetime movie. And as long as you're vague, you don't have to explain what the job is. Like, is she an editor? <laughs> is she an assistant to the CEO? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Not the point. 
<laughs> the point is, is that these two people are very beautiful and watching them fall in love is fun. This movie is is a dessert. It's it's pure sugar chocolate movie. Uh, there's no brain involved. You you watch this thing entirely passively, and you just occasionally you just go oh. <laughs> and you know what? After watching the movies that I watched, and I loved those movies I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, I, I really I, Nightmare Alley is amazing. The tragedy of Macbeth is, I mean, it's Shakespeare done by a Cohen brother. Yeah. With Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand. Yeah. Brilliant. But, and the lost daughter, my God, I can't wait to talk about that next week. Uh, it's, it's a challenge. <laughs> it's a challenging movie. So I needed this. I, it's such a dumb name and it's such a dumb concept, but Lucy Hale is very, is very sweet, very funny. She and Austin Stoll have, you know, the kind of chemistry that, Lifetime movies would live for. Uh, it's it's fine. Go see it. Watch it. It's it's good. <laughs> yeah, much like Red Rocket, the critics and audiences loved this. Uh, well, there uh, critics liked it. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, they liked it more than Don't Look Up and Being the Ricardos, according to Rotten Ooh, that's Tomatoes. Good. Uh, that's and good. National Champions. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it deserves it. It's actually quite. It's it's a fun romantic comedy. It's very sweet, very sweet film. But the best reviewed audience and critically is West Side Story, the Steven Spielberg remake. Yes, West Side Story is a remake of the 1961 movie by Robert Wise, choreographed by Jerome Robbins. Of course, a da- adaptation of a Broadway play set in uh, New York City in the post World War II period, where the city is being torn down and rebuilt in a whole new way. Uh, in amidst that destruction are there these two street gangs, the Jets and the Sharks. The Jets and the Sharks hate each other because of racism. Straight up racism. It's just a pure racial hate. Uh, the, the This is a movie that has like L- Echoes of the Great Replacement, which is a horrific concept that I urge you to look up so you can just be aware of it and be aware what the right, what the truly extreme right wing is saying right now. Uh, Puerto Ricans are moving into this neighborhood and they're taking away all the businesses and all the jobs. Is the, is the thing here? Uh, what what struggles with this movie and what keeps it from being a great movie is is partly the racism, which I'll get to, but also the the fact that it's just screamingly inessential. Like, there's no reason to make this movie. I know that Spielberg is kind of going for this very soft, both sides political view here in this movie. Uh, and and it doesn't land quite quite well for me, uh, mostly because he's being fair to people who are just outright blatantly hateful racists. <laughs> he's trying to be fair and wring pathos from them now. I gave this movie a very positive review because it is a popcorn movie. It is a likable movie. The songs are great. Uh, the songs are iconic. You've heard these songs, many of them, without having seen this movie. And without having seen the 1961 movie, you know these songs. They've seeped into your pop culture memory uh, <laughs> beyond your will. There's no keeping them out. They're that great. Uh, the choreography is incredible. Uh, there's the, you know, the scene, uh, America, uh, the, the song America is sung here and performed extraordinarily well um i can't fault either rachel zegler or ansel elgort for their performances it's very romantic uh, doomed uh relationship it's beautiful and rita rita moreno is wonderful in the movie um but it is screamingly inessential 
there's no reason to have done this. There's no reason that West Side Story 2021 needs to exist. Uh, and so that, for me, just kind of makes it very basic, uh, more of a popcorn movie. But if you dig in too deep in this, and I, I kind of did after I finished my review, like the elements of the race stuff is very poorly done. Um, this portrays Puerto Rican men as all of them are angry. All of them want to fight all the time. Uh, and I know we can't say it's a referendum on all Puerto Rican people. And I don't, it's not intended to be, but they don't do a very good job of developing those characters. They don't hire actors who are very, aside from maybe Daniel Alvarez, who gets the most screen time, those characters are very underwritten as are the, as are the jets to a point too. They're, they're much more underwritten as well, but I don't see, there's nothing redeeming about the jets. And so the tragedy doesn't, doesn't quite land, uh, because they're very racist, and in the end, they're almost rapists. In the near end of the movie, they're almost racists, a rapist on top of being racist. Um, and the movie doesn't do a good job with that. It doesn't want to go there uh, because this is a popcorn movie and not an art film. I get it. They're just trying to make you smile, and it does a good job of making you smile. Yeah, the problem with the both sides stories is you got to find you can do the both sides stuff. You got to pick the right stuff. Like you don't defend the racism. You defend something else. <laughs> so the, they're not right on that part at all. Are you really, I yeah. mean, how do you, that doesn't make any sense. I didn't like the original West side story. Part of it though, is me not being a musical fan. Uh, uh, so I did not see this. I like even Spielberg as much as I, you can't say he's not a great director, but I also think he's a very safe director for the most part. He has some fantastic movies, but he also does a lot of middle-of-the-road stuff. Uh, uh, and I don't think he challenges himself enough. Uh, he does a lot of safe pictures, I think, but he does them really well. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to, I, I'm the wrong person just to talk about the racism of this movie. I would say that there's a there's a person on Twitter who I who I like a great deal who's done a great job of highlighting Puerto Rican critics who have written about this movie and talked in depth about the racial aspect of this that do, does need to be addressed. Uh, and uh, it's a Latinx lens. And I would urge you to check that out and check out her Twitter feed, especially where she's been sharing reviews of this movie that that do give you the full, a fuller breadth, like the, the truly like the, there's critics who really appreciate a lot about this movie, but they want to, people to talk about this aspect. It's very much easy to paint, to paint over that suspect. Oh, that's not what the movie's intended to be about. But I mean, it's there. You included it. <laughs> the, the, the jets motivation is that they're racists, uh, that they are a racist street gang, that they want to kill Puerto Rican people. Uh, the Puerto Rican people want to kill them. So, again, that's your kind of your both sides of it. Well, they're just as bad. They want to kill the, the white people just as much as the Puerto Ricans want to kill the Puerto, the, you know. Uh, and that's the both sides thing I'm talking about. And right. really, the, the, I don't, the Jets side is not a both sides for me. <laughs> they're wrong. <laughs> the Jets are wrong. Right. It's, yeah. Uh, let's move on to our undisputed classics. We've run a little long, and we'll talk about Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge stars uh, Ewan McGregor as a writer who moves to France to uh, write about love because he's obsessed with love. And he uh, kind of falters into this um, friendship with uh, John Leguizamo playing Toulouse-Lautrec and, of course, his group of people who hang out at the Moulin Rouge, which was a, a real club in Paris at the turn of the century. Um 
Nicole Kidman is the star there. She over she's the bright shining attraction everywhere. Uh, and the romance is going to develop between them as they're putting this play together. But there's also a character played by Richard Roxburgh, who is the villain. He's the Duke who's paying for the entire production that they're putting on. And he obviously who wants to have Nicole Kidman for himself. And he assumes that he can just have her because she's a, a sex worker. She's a courtesan. Uh, so she and McGregor try to have their romance in the background and keep it from him. And that's kind of the tension of the whole thing. Uh, this is directed, of course, by Baz Luhrmann, and uh, it has incredible music and incredible choices. The medleys in this movie are really brilliant. The the layering of the way he layers in familiar pop songs and certain original beats, uh, and just very well, very well crafted as a musical. It's so well put together in that way, especially for me. I can't not get emotional when I'm watching that Roxanne scene. The way that singer steps forward and just belts out the Roxanne, like that gets me every time. And then they turn that into this dirge. This song is incredibly well known. It's uh, and you know very popular, but he turns it into this operatic dirge and balanced against you know Ewan McGregor's you know desperate sadness in that moment it is so tragic it's it's got so much power behind it and they've choreographed this large tango to it that is incredible i i've always loved this movie it was one of my favorite movies of the year it came out and uh, i'm still a huge fan of this movie and uh, you said something on the bonus beatles podcast about how people who hate the beatles it defines who they are and i don't want that to be about me and musicals so uh, I'm very aware of anything that I don't like. It's just me not opening myself up to it. Like I, I was annoyed by the use of popular music uh, and it shouldn't be. It's stupid that I was and I, I, I can't not be. I don't know why, but it, it's just something that takes me out of the movie. But I, I, I'm and I'll fully admit I'm wrong in that. It's just kind of a, an instinctive thing and I don't <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, what I do really love about this movie, and uh, it's just, it's the box I want to put Nicole Kidman in. Uh, she, it, it, this character is not in that box, so it, it's amazing for me to see her like that. I mean, I know she's one of the greatest actresses out there. Uh, so she always takes risks, sometimes fails when she does it, but she's never afraid to fail, and that's what's really cool about her as an actress. And I thought her performance was amazing uh, here. Uh, just, and a lot of it is me holding her down as an actress, wanting her to be a certain thing, which she's always something different. But here she's so not what I'm used to her being or wanting her to be that I just can't help but think she's amazing in this movie. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think what people would assume of a role like this is more of a Madonna type, you yes. know, is that, that kind of that kind of sass, that kind of sassy sexuality. And you don't think Nicole Kidman can do that. And then she does it. <laughs> She's really great at it. She reminded me a lot of Marilyn Monroe, uh, mm-hmm. the best of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, that's what I was really getting out of this. And I would never have said that about Nicole Kidman ever, that she could compare to Marilyn Monroe. They're very different, seemingly different types of actresses. But this is this is the kind of movie that Marilyn Monroe would have excelled at. But yeah, she's just phenomenal. But I, I just can't fairly talk about it otherwise because I'm just not into musicals. And then when you like, I'm like the guy who doesn't like Weird Al that much because it's just like, well, I mean, it's just making fun of popular songs. How hard is that? Yeah. Uh, and again, it's not something I 
live and die on. I just when people bring it up, I just kind of walk the other way. You know, Star Wars is where I live and die, and that's where I defined my hate, defined my hate. But yeah. I don't. I'm neither here nor there. I'm just not. It's not of interest to me. And uh, I am glad though that this is opening me up because like when we watch Chicago, I can at least recognize the genius of it. It just still not for me, but I can see why it works. And even here, I get why it works. I just the fact that it's popular music that they worked into it is just a stupid rule that I've made up and you know, that I'm not allowing the movie to have and it's not fair to the movie and it's just stupid, but you're not alone in that. A lot of people hate what's so-called uh, jukebox musicals where they, where people take well-known songs and make them part of their musicals. There's a lot of people who just define themselves by hating that. Like that's not original. That's not Broadway. Uh, and, I, I, you know, okay, well, fine. I, I don't, uh, but I, I thought that he changed these songs in such unique ways. Like I mentioned, Roxanne is such a, a, a beautiful choice. The way he uses that, the way he uses your song to to develop the plot and to be the kind of the spine of the the story early on is very beautiful to me. Uh, it helps that I really like those songs too. <laughs> I liked every every song that he, that he talks about in the movie. Every song that they perform, I, I I'm a huge fan of. So I, I'm, I'm certainly it was certainly preaching to the choir with me in that way. Well, at the same time, I, the fact that I like those songs too, uh, it's the polar opposite effect. And again, it's, I'm fully admitting to being wrong here. So it's like, that's what probably making this podcast a little more boring. The last few years is I'm definitely more critical of my opinions. <laughs> I'm always beating them <laughs> down and trying to explain where they're coming from. Uh, I just, it's an instinctive thing. And I, uh, I don't want it. I sh- no art should be held down by somebody else's opinion, and I uh, fully admit to being wrong. It's just not for me, and I it, I fight it. Maybe I need to watch it again now that I got it out of my system. You know, you know everything that bugs me about it, and maybe I'll enjoy it for what it is the next time. But I yeah. think you need to be a little less hard on yourself, though. Too, I mean, you you've been incredibly open on this show you we, you and i've gone to places on this show that no one no one else no one would else or else would go there uh not that we're the bravest podcast in the world but i'm saying that like for two straight white guys to go where we go sometimes i think is pretty impressive but also just the, the movies that you watch that that immediately someone might assume that you're going to hate you've been very open to watching oh. those and and, ex- and taking in experiences that that you normally wouldn't oh yeah late miz la la land there's definitely been movies that i didn't think i would like or even you know i I, i'll never be able to like les mis as much as you do because it's not i can't open my mind up enough for it but i it's you know it's gradually it's expanding more and more every time you you go down those you know to a movie you're not you don't want to give a chance classic films specifically there's a lot of homework that ended up not being homework uh that i'm very happy about uh but no, I I don't know. It, it, I've also enjoyed, and maybe it's not for the listeners, but it is fun for me to to kind of unwrap why we feel a certain way about things, and even when I know you're not going to feel it, when you're going to feel a certain way, is to pull up what other critics say and try to see where you're coming from too. And I, I don't know. It's to me, it's fascinating. Maybe it's not to the listeners. I apologize if it's not. <laughs> But hey, it's something I enjoy. If, if you come this far, I think you got to be into it. <laughs> <laughs> These are our people. They're they're there. Yeah. Uh, 
but no i i get why this works uh, similar to chicago it is very watchable in nature and uh and nicole kidman just proves again why she's one of the best out there and not just her the whole cast is believable and it works uh everything that doesn't work is my viewing <laughs> opinion <laughs> uh 1991 hook and the last boy scott came out uh we've talked about a lot of movies so far i don't know if you have anything you want to talk about on those two but otherwise <laughs> i don't hate hook as much as other people do uh, i i don't think i do anyway i don't remember i keep forgetting if i like it or not so that's probably not a good thing in the movie's favor of it uh, <laughs> still yeah. uh i i i think i like it a little bit more than other people i think I think it's handsomely mounted. I thought Robin Williams is a perfect choice to play the character, uh, especially the, the way that they, I think people are so used to the Peter Pan story told in such a specific way that when you go out of your way to tell it a completely different way, the way he did, it's a very different way of telling that story. I, I was, I was impressed by it. Uh, at least the boldness of it. And I love Julia Roberts's performance in that movie. Yeah. I thought she was so, so cute in that role. She brought such heart to that. And I think that gets left behind in the fact that she was, you know, such a big star in such a small role. I think that over, I think that overshadowed the movie. Yeah, for sure. And Last Boy Scout, I refuse to watch because I don't want to ruin that opinion I had when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> loved it then. I know I'm not going to like it now. So why? It's so dumb. But I can't. I can't help but love it. I only watched that movie so many times as a kid. That stupid scene at the start where the guy's running down the field with the football and just pulls out a gun and shoots a guy. It's such a dumb scene. It's but so it's badass so cool. when you're 13. It really is. Uh, the difference between me and you is I've only watched it a handful of times, so I'm not yeah. like I don't. I won't be able to have the Rocky Four Heat, you know, movies that I've watched a million times, Demolition Man, where I'm just gonna love it. And even though I know it's stupid, I'm gonna. I've only seen this movie three times, and yeah, all before like the age of sixteen. So, <laughs> yeah, as a, as I I used to be a big fan of uh, David Wayans, so yeah. he's gotten a little weird the last few years. So I've not paid much of attention to him, but. Uh, he, I just think him and Willis together, they're, they're, they're very funny in oh. that movie. And uh, the scene with the bunny puppet kills me <laughs> every time. It gets me every time. It's so stupid, but it's so fun. You can just tell like Bruce Willis is having so much fun. And that's it, it's poignant now because he doesn't seem to have any fun at all today. Yeah. And you hear that a lot from people about him. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, that is our show next week. We got Spider-Man No Way Home, The Novice, Nightmare Alley. I'm going to make, a, I got to make myself get to the theater for that one. Uh, Swan Song on Apple TV, uh, Juice World Into the Abyss, HBO Max. Uh, then you said The Lost Daughter. Is that next week as well? I think so. Uh, Netflix has me so confused on when yeah. they're going to release things. It might not even be till January for all I know, but uh <laughs> It wasn't on your list. We'll put that as a maybe. Our classics, The Night of Kiberia. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, Knights of Kiberia uh, is a movie that's getting a re-release. Uh, not nationally, but like in a limited re-release. But they've done a whole new thing of it. And I, it's one of the few Fellini movies that I've never seen. So, I, And plus, you know, just how often do we get the chance to talk about Fellini? Right. I, mean, <laughs> not, I don't know. We, we, have we done a Fellini movie on the show? I 
it's possible we did. It's just it's just way way back there. Yeah, I don't know. I just want to be pretentious in a different way than Aaron Sorkin is. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. I promise not to be smug in my pretension. Right, and then. <laughs> Next week proves why 1991 sucks, as it was probably one of their <laughs> big weeks that of that year, and it was Bugsy, Father of the Bride, and JFK. Uh, that is some high-range garbage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, movies I will not be watching, although I've never seen Bugsby, uh, but <laughs> uh, Warren Beatty has not fared well on the show. He really hasn't. No, I hate shampoo. <laughs> Still to this day. Yeah. Uh, we have gone a little long. Well, let's do a quick round of flick chart if you're all right with that. Yeah. All right. Dog day, afternoon, spring, summer, fall, winter, and spring. That's a really great movie. Um, I mean, you haven't seen it, so we can just skip it. Okay. Well, I was going to let you pick otherwise, but since you said that, I'll skip it. Dog day, afternoon. Or Elysium. Dog Day Afternoon. Very easy. America's Sweethearts, Rudy. America's Sweethearts. You won me over on the Rudy conversation. Yeah, I just... Not that I ever loved it, but... <laughs> it's flaws, much like Forrest Gump, it's flaws become more apparent over well, the years. And I'm voting against... It's more the fans of the movie that's... <laughs> The love of it. The the yeah. movie that makes guys cry. No, it's not. Uh, Doubt the X-Files. Doubt. Were you an X-Files fan as a kid? My sister was. I I wasn't. Yeah, I feel like I'm missing something, but I just never got into it. Uh, Basic Instinct Shaft 2000. Both are awful. Which one do you like? <laughs> I mean, Basic Instinct's more... I don't know. I I can't take memorable. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, Five hundred days of summer network. That's not fair. That is not fair. That is not fair. Those movies are incredible. <laughs> oh man, uh, reluctantly network because I don't want to take anything. I think people miss out on just how beautiful Five Hundred Days of Summer is. Yeah. That's hard. I'll go with you. But 500 Days of Summer is amazing. I love that movie. Layer Cake, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> uh, both Guy Ritchie movies, I believe. Um, uh, or is Layer Cake made up? I think Layer no, Cake's sure. from like one of his disciples. <laughs> maybe Matthew Vaughn, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Um, Sherlock Holmes. I'd probably watch that instead. It's a very easy movie to watch. Yeah. Deadpool 2, The Terminator. Deadpool 2. Yeah. About Schmidt, Kong, Skull Island. About Schmidt. Greed. Double Jeopardy, Live Free, or Die Hard. Double Jeopardy. Sure. I don't really have an opinion on that one. High Noon, Short Circuit. High Noon. Don't like short circuit at all. The forty-year-old virgin primer. The forty-year-old virgin. Agreed. The Karate Kid Part Two Fletch. I don't care. <laughs> which one? Which one do you like? 
like if Karate Kid Two is like the only one I don't really care about. Fletch, I guess I like, but I feel like Chevy Chase. I'm supposed to start hating, and I if we keep doing this podcast in another five, six, seven years, he could be a Dustin Hoffman type thing for me. Uh, and he already start. Some of them are already starting to go that way, but uh, Ready Player One, Fast Five, Fast Five. Get the old quarter out. I don't love Ready Player One. <laughs> uh, congratulations. Fast five it is. The cell in and out. In and out. The cell's just too far up its own ass. Yeah. The Living Daylights Fight Club. Fight Club. Yes. Wanted Dumb and Dumber. Dumb and Dumber. It's a smarter movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all wanted is, is look how badass Angelina Jolie is every time she looks at the camera. Uh, Lake Placid, the perfect storm. Perfect storm. Agreed. The bling ring, the prestige. Prestige. Yeah, that's hard for me, though. I like the bling ring quite a bit, but. The Prestige is one of the Nolan movies I like a lot. Cowboys and Aliens, Bruce Almighty. Bruce Almighty. How you can screw up a movie with aliens and cowboys, I have no idea. You put them together? That's your shit right there. That's right. <laughs> uh. Good night, everybody.